Welcome to episode eight of Resisting the Dragon's Beast. I am the author, Pastor Michael Zarling. We're here with the editor and my good friend, Peter Hagen. Uh, although, Peter, I think you and I have only met. I think in I person. got a promotion. I, I just got a promotion. What did I say? <laughs> you called me your friend. <laughs> oh, yes. Yes. Well, you're my Facebook friend. Yeah. Uh, because I don't, I think we've only met in person one time. But I think that is correct. Yeah. But we bounce everything off of each other. Uh, I wanted to start this this podcast instead of reading something at the end. I want to start it with uh, some a comment that was made on the Facebook page after the last episode, which I appreciate the feedback. Gentleman uh, writes, it's not really accurate to say that Luther's views change. He just came to understand that the application was different when you were talking about one part of the government doing something illegal to another part of the government. He was also convinced by lawyers, not theologians at Torgau. So David, thank you for that comment. I have to admit, I haven't had a chance to really dig into that. Uh, the two main books that I would have looked <clears throat> looked at it in this, in the bi bibliography of my book too, would be on, Tyranny and Resistance, the Magdeburg Confession, and the Lutheran Tradition. And then also uh, the Magdeburg Confession. Uh, and I will look at both, getting both of those from uh, Amazon or wherever else you buy books uh, to look at more in depth on the history of these things. So it may be not fair to say that he changed his his ideas on this, but I think I would use that word change in that the way maybe you and I, Peter, we kind of changed. I think a lot of people's views changed from 2020 on in that you know, we, we never suspected our American government and in, in doing some of the things and becoming more tyrannical. Is that accurate? I think so. And, and then together with it, going back to the Peasants Revolt, um, compared to the Torgau uh, Declaration. Um, two totally different settings and contexts. And anytime you've got that, that's where you have, uh, you can have a difference in application without a, a change in the principle behind that application or undergirding that application. And, um, right. and that's something that we, we see consistently throughout scripture that, you know, these, these peasants revolting or, um, or armed rebellion against the government um, is is not something that God condones. Yeah, and that, oh, just thinking of those things like that is, you know, we know these scriptural passages which we looked at in chapter one of Romans 13 of the fourth commandment, give to Caesar what is Caesar. But we know those scripture passage and then we apply them differently in different situations. Uh, like you were saying, there's one way of applying it with the peasants revolt and maybe another way of applying it then when it comes like uh, when the Lutheran princes and so forth uh, were going to be attacked by the emperor and the pope. Mm -hmm. And I think the, the, the larger question also, um, aside from using kind of church history as a, uh, as a laboratory for looking at various applications throughout time, um, that the bigger question is our, our hermeneutic. That is to say, did all of a sudden Martin Luther start reading scripture differently? Um, no, <laughs> and the Lutherans did not. 
Um, but the circumstances in which they were applying and reading that scripture had changed. Um, and part of that dynamic for sure is, is the dynamic of aggressor versus the, the defender. And in the peasants' revolt, uh, the peasants weren't defending themselves against anything. Um, and they were not seeking a, uh, a peaceful resolution to any of their complaints. They just wanted um, God to give them a thumbs up and go ahead with your rebellion, which Luther said, no way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and that kind of reminds me of a pastor had messaged me this week and said that he had one of his members who had come to him during COVID because other churches, other schools were more locked down than his church was. And so she was wondering what was going to happen at their church and school, because it seems like COVID restrictions are going to be coming back and so forth. And I, I love what he said, and I told him I would quote him. He said, we won't be fooled again. <laughs> and, and I think that's, he knew the same scriptural passages we're talking about, but we applied them differently before. And now that we know more of a story, we apply them in a different context. Yeah. And, um, and when we talk about that, it's like, especially, you know, we're talking about a new virus, um, you know, three years ago, um, give you the benefit, benefit of the doubt because you're the experts and we can, we can go along with this at least for a time. Um, the, when it comes around again, the thing about viruses is that typically they either uh, morph to, you know, morph to become more communicable um, or they morph to become more deadly. And it is, it is very, very seldom happened in history that it, that it does both, both more communicable and more deadly. Um, and so with that, with that in mind, obviously, you know, I, I mentioned previously that our congregation here has installed some ionizers to help sanitize the air and reduce the things that are just floating around in the air. So we've taken reasonable steps. Um, but also knowing how viruses work, that if it is still spreading around here in, you know, third or fourth year um, going on, um, then chances are it is more communicable and, and less hazardous to one's health. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you and I are jumping ahead. That's a whole nother chapter. But we also bring it up here because these are the things that we're seeing going on in, in our culture right now. You know, every time I open up a news feed for another link, there's another news story about masks or vaccines or lockdowns and so forth. So those are all the things that are being fed. And so that's why we're reacting to these things here. Uh, but you kind of kind of led into this with the Peasants' Revolt and with Luther. And so we're on page 49 on Luther's treatise on resistance, <clears throat> which he titled A Warning to My Dear German People. So there I talk about how Luther was resistant to be resistant. Uh, he didn't want to do this, but like you said before, Peter, when the emperor is the aggressor, then he, he is forcing the Lutherans to be resistant. So this is what he, what he writes from the, from the warning to my dear German people. It is not fitting for me, a preacher, vested with the spiritual office to wage war or to counsel war or incite it, but rather to dissuade from war and to direct to peace, as I have done until now with all diligence. All the world must bear witness to this. However, our enemies do not want to have peace but war. If war should come, 
I will surely hold my pen in check and keep silent and not intervene as I did in the last uprising. So there he says, uh, you know, he spoke up at the last one from the peasants, but this time when the, you know, the last time the peasants were the aggressor and they were wrong. And now he's saying the emperor, he's being the aggressor and he is wrong and he's not going to be uh, silent. Yeah, and and when he says that it, in in your paragraph at the top of page twenty, um, that he isn't that Martin Luther basically knows his lane, he knows his responsibility, that he has um, that he God's get, entrusted him with spiritual power or a spiritual responsibility and spiritual authority, I would say, um, and he wants to do his best to you know not encourage something that is that is ungodly, um, and so he's like, okay, well here's here's the boundary line if they want to have war then um then we can't avoid it but he's not going to sit back and and encourage uh that sort of violence and it's interesting that in 2020 people were quoting to us give to caesar what is caesar's matthew 22 21. so it's interesting that 500 ye years earlier people are doing the exact same thing to pastor luther and saying, you just have to go along with Caesar. And this is what he said. A Christian knows very well what he is to do, namely to render to God the things that are God's and to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but not to render to the bloodhounds the things that are not theirs. So uh, he was saying the same thing that we've been saying, uh, that when Caesar, in this instance, the emperor is coming uh, to take things that don't belong to him, you don't give it to him. Yeah, and it's a, it's one thing to say, oh yeah, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Period. End of statement. Um, but there's a lot more that is going on here. Um, that Jesus says, well, give to God what is God's, which means don't delegate to Caesar what is not Caesar's. Yeah, I just saw a meme the other day that was using all these kinds of words that were coming down in 2020 and 2021 of mandates and so forth. Other uh synonyms to mandates and the point of that meme was none of those are legal you know, none of those words uh you know when you have a mandate coming down from someone usually those are not coming down from the legislature that has just passed a law because that's a law and so the the point is when there's something that is coming down from a government governing authority we need to do our due diligence as Christian citizens and say, is this legal? Is this right? Is it appropriate? And if not, then we push back. And that's what Luther's saying there. And and what's interesting too, in the next portion of his of his letter that I quote, he talks about how people were saying they were equating resistance with rebellion. And he said, no. Uh, it's not the same. You can't just change language to make it fit whatever you want. And again, we're living in the exact same culture where people are changing the words. Uh, so I, I actually laughed out loud when I reread this this morning. And I'll tell you where I started laughing. He writes, we must not let everything be considered rebellious, which the bloodhounds designate as such. For in that way, they want to silence the lips and tie the hands of the entire world so that no one may either reprove them with preaching or defend himself with his fist. 
while they keep their mouth open and their hands free. Thus they want to frighten and ensnare all the world with the name insurrection, and at the same time comfort and reassure themselves. And that's where I started laughing, because we've heard the word insurrection a lot in our nation, where they'll equate January 6th with an insurrection. And yet, if you understand a bunch of uh, protesters going into the Capitol, that is not an insurrection. And if that is, then so is every time other protesters went into courthouses and police stations and burned them down and so forth. Yeah, and and I mean, that's kind of the, the, the challenging part is that there are elements of legality that that the normal average citizen doesn't really know about or think about or have exposure to. Um, so there's that first layer of, of kind of, you know, ambiguity. And then that second layer of ambiguity is, um, is that the people who know best how to use these laws are really lawyers um, who will use them either for their own gain or for the benefit of whoever they want. Um, because no law is, is truly objective in and of itself. Um, it has to be applied and the application isn't necessarily objective. And so when we talk about that, then, you know, trying to summarize um, whether it was January 6th or, or any of these events um, and describe them, you know, with a, a large overarching term that has strong um, legal implications, um, but it's also outside of the normal conversation of the average American citizen, then we're, we're just left kind of sitting there in the middle to say, okay, if that person calls it in insurrection, then that must be what it is. Um, and the, the ability to understand both what it means legally, as well as how that law is applied is, um, is the most challenging part. I mean, frankly, I, I haven't watched any of that, so <laughs> no. I haven't heard. <laughs> so I no, know. <laughs> I, what I know about it is very limited also, but what I do know is that news media and politicians will say that January 6th was insurrection. And yet for all of those people that were arrested, not a single one was tried for insurrection. It was trespassing and so forth. And so just because someone uses a word in one way doesn't mean it, it is that way. Uh, and that's what Luther goes on to say. Uh, no, dear fellow, we must submit to you a different interpretation and definition of that term. To act contrary to law is not rebellion. Otherwise, every violation of the law would be rebellion. No, he is an insurrectionist who refuses to submit to government and law, who attacks and fights against them, and attempts to overthrow them with a view in making himself ruler and establishing the law as Munzer did. That is the true definition of a rebel. An invader is one thing, a transgressor is another. In accordance with this definition, self-defense against the bloodhounds cannot be rebellious. Uh, so he's saying that equating resistance with rebellion and insurrection, that's not fair. Resistance is usually passive. Uh, insurrection, rebellion, that's active. And in an insurrection, you're not just rebelling, you're going to overthrow the government. And uh, that's not what those protesters on January 6th were doing. That's not what Luther and the other Lutheran princes were doing. 
Yeah, and I think that's where, um, especially words, you know, words matter. And the fact that he brings out, you know, this has been happening for 500 years, it's probably been happening for, you know, 4,000 years, that that words matter and, and that people will use words for their own benefit um, when they think that it will be helpful in advancing their cause. And just to be clear-eyed and thinking clearly about that is a, is a good place to start. So I am, I'm drawing a blank here. I know I just listened to this book. You can help me out, Peter. So, uh, so I listened to Animal House and Animal Farm, Animal, Animal, Farm. Animal House. <laughs> I, that's a movie. I've Written seen by John Belushi. Yeah. So who is the author of Animal Farm? Uh, George Orwell. Okay. And what was his other book? Uh, 1984. Thank you. I, I and... was sitting here while you're, but 1984 is the one I'm thinking of because I was listening to that while I was biking this summer. And it, that's exactly what Luther is talking about here. It, the protagonist in that book, 1984, is changing words you know, and uh, changing history and so forth. So that one time they're fighting Eurasia, the next time they're not fighting Eurasia, they're allied with Eurasia. And people just go along with it because that's what they're being told. Yeah, and that's the fascinating thing about 1984 is that um, Orwell based it on his experience in Spain during the fascist uprising um, of like 1936 or so. And the way that he paints the picture, what he paints is the how basic your basic totalitarian government, one way in which they exercise their, their power and authority. Um, and the major way is by using words and manipulating history um, in order to control control the populace today. If you're a fan of the, uh, the, the punk rock band uh, Rage Against the Machine from like a decade or two, maybe three ago. I, I must have missed that. <laughs> um, <clears throat> anyway, Rage Against the Machine has this, has this one lyric um, where they say, whoever controls the present now controls the past. Whoever controls the past controls the future. I'm sure they got it from somebody else and it's probably in, in some of their dictator writings of the 20th century as well. Um, but when they set it to music, it's a, it just hits a little bit differently. And, and that's the basic idea of 1984 is that Winston Smith is controlling the past according to the dictates of the government. And therefore, since there's no you know, solid factual history of the, of the past, um, that means they can manipulate the past in order to control the people today and the future. And, um, and so then, you know, that's, that's kind of why we, we study church history. And that's kind of why uh, Luther makes a big deal out of these, these words meaning words, and these words have meaning, um, which is also, you know, as, as Christian parents, that's where we take an interest in, in our children, the children of our day schools, um, studying history, um, not, just, not just social studies, but history, what are these actual events that happened? Um, because it's only when you know these things and can talk about them that you can have a profitable discussion on events today and going forward. Yeah, so two things on that. Uh, one is, this is how we began last episode where someone, because I was resisting, had said, well, you're not Lutheran. Well, that's changing the name. That's not knowing our history. And so you can try and get away with that. But thankfully, we, we know our history, and it is Lutheran to resist. That's what we're going to get into with the, the rest of Luther's letter, as well as we spend a lot of time in the next few episodes on the Magdeburg Confession. And then one other thing, too, is 
when I was trying to get you to figure out what I was talking about there, I felt like it, we were playing the $50,000 pyramid and just getting you to guess uh, guess what I'm talking about, what I'm thinking of. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Luther goes on on page 51. I've, I've got a little bit more about this and maybe to, okay. to follow up on this. Um, the idea of a, of a just war, um, you know, not advocating in any sort for, for resistance, but that there is a little bit of correlation between August, Augustine used like four criteria for a just war. This one also includes um, six criteria, I think. Um, number six, the exit strategy um, is, is one of the new ones. I don't know what the other one is. Um, but Augustine's idea of a just war is that, you know, it's a last resort. So you, you try to maintain peace as well as, as long as possible, um, that you have an, in a correct cause, a just cause, um, that you're just not, not doing it for um, ambivalent, frivolous reasons, um, that you have just authority, meaning that you have, you've been consistent in this and that the law is applied equally. Um, those, are, those are dealing, the first one, two, and three, dealing with um, especially you know, the reasoning, the rationale for it. Numbers four, five, and six deal with the action of it, um, that you've got probable success, that it's a proportionate use of force, and that there is a goal of ending it quickly. Um, and so I think in, in that regard, there might be a little bit of overlap between the, you know, the thinking through of, of a just war and, and what actually constitutes proper resistance that resistance is a last resort and that it is a just cause for this ongoing, um, ongoing trampling of rights or this ongoing evil, whatever that may be, that it has a valid authority. We've talked about, um, talked about that one a few times. Um, I think where it differs is numbers four, five, and six, um, which would be how Augustine and now others in the just war theory um, style of thinking um, talk about the implementation of this, you know, probable success, proportionality, and exit strategy, that that's where the analogy kind of starts to fall apart. Um, but at least those first three seem to have some correlation to the idea of Christian resistance, um, but not rebellion. Yeah, that's helpful. And talking about a just war, I remember back when I was a pastor in uh, near Fort Knox, Kentucky, many years ago, and then we had the war with uh, after 9-11 and with President Bush uh, leading us in uh, Kuwait and then Iraq that I remember doing a Bible study for a few weeks on a just war. And I thought it was pretty easy to see, yeah, this is a just war. And then it was interesting to have some of these soldiers, you know, people who are and retired soldiers kind of pushing back and said, no, this is not a just war. And I, like I said, I thought it was a no-brainer. It was just. And so it was interesting now all these years later saying, well, maybe there weren't any weapons of mass destruction. Maybe Iraq did not have anything to do with the terrorist attack. And so maybe it was not a just war. I'm not saying it was or not, but it's it's healthy to have this discussion but it, like you said, equating resistance with a just war theory, we as Christians can look at these things and apply scripture and say, and common sense, and go, all right, one might say this is a just war and a reason for resistance, and someone might say this is unjust and it's not time to resist yet. Yeah, 
And I, and I think that's probably that, that last part where you get to the, the squishiness, the, the timeline of application of this. Is this a last resort? And, or, or is this um, simply using the tools that the government has allotted to its citizens in for perhaps the First Amendment? Yeah, and then going back on page 51, uh, Luther even goes so far as to say that if a citizen sides with the emperor when the emperor attacks, then that citizen is being disobedient to God. I quote him saying, this is my sincere advice. If the emperor should issue a call to arms against us on behalf of the Pope or because of our teaching, as the papists at present horribly gloat and boast, though I do not yet expect this of the emperor, no one should lend himself to it or obey the emperor in this event. All may rest assured that God has strictly forbidden compliance with such a command of the emperor. Whoever does obey him can be certain that he is disobedient to God and will lose both body and soul eternally in the war. For in this case, the emperor would not only act in contravention of God and divine law, but also in violation of his own imperial law, vow, duty, seal, and edicts. And unless you imagine that this is just my own idea or that such advice is dictated by my fancy, I shall submit clear and strong reasons and arguments to convince you that this is not my own counsel, but God's earnest, manifold, and stringent command. Before his anger, you surely ought to be terrified, and in the end, must be terrified. So what he's saying there is, when it comes to resistance, there comes a, t a point that we as Christian citizens are called upon to resist. And we're, we're not resisting then we're sinning, which is the opposite of what many are, say, are saying about resistance. They're saying, when you resist, you sin. But that's why, again, we keep coming back to this, the whole point of this book in the last three years is hopefully we are going to be discussing these things. Yeah, because even, even the exact same option, uh, the exact same action um, done in four different years apart in the same place, um, because of the passage of time, it is a different set of circumstances. And it's not something where we can just say, okay, here's the policy and here's the precedent. And now here's the action we're going to do. Um, but rather we need to keep our heads and our hearts plugged in and say, all right, let's think about this again and put in some time to look at this again. Yeah. And with that, I was thinking of that this morning about if these COVID restrictions try coming back what we as a church and a school are going to do. And instead of, you know, at least for me, and I think Pastor Kusmeyer, my associate, uh, we will, instead of just going along with whatever the CDC recommends or whatever uh, the city of Racine tries to mandate, then we're going to bring it up to our council, to our leaders, and then discuss these things and then lay something out ahead of time and uh, and then say the same thing with the school so that now we are being proactive instead of reactive. And I think that's where we all got flat-footed last time because we were just reacting because we had never done something like this before. Now, three years later, we've gone through this before. Hopefully, we'll have a plan. Definitely. Uh, yeah. And then page 52, uh, the last quote I have from Luther's letter is uh, he does talk about resisting, but he does say, like I said before, he's resistant to resist. It's 
resistance is a last resort. He said, let this suffice for the time being as an apology for the emperor. Now, we want to issue a warning, giving reasons why everyone should rightly beware and fear to obey the emperor in such an instance and to wage war against our side. I repeat what I said earlier, that I do not wish to advise or incite anyone to engage in war. My ardent wish and plea is that peace be preserved and that neither side start a war or give cause for it. For I do not want my conscience burdened, nor do I want to be known before God or the world as having counseled or desired anyone to wage war or to offer resistance except those who are enjoined and authorized to do so. But wherever the devil has so completely possessed the papists that they cannot and will not keep or tolerate peace or where they absolutely want to wage war or provoke it, that will rest upon their conscience. There's nothing I can do about it since my remonstrances are ignored and futile. So Luther's point here is that the Lutherans were at peace. But with if the emperor and the pope joined forces to attack the Lutherans, they were the ones who were breaking that peace. And I think that's a, a great way of figuring out as Christians whether we are to resist. Are, are we being peaceful? And I think as Christians, we're the ones that are turning the other cheek and so forth. We're giving a cloak to a stranger. We're giving a cup of cold water to a child. We're the peaceful ones. And when governing authorities are disrupting the peace, they're the ones that are becoming tyrannical. Then that's the time that we resist. It's the same idea that we had um, in toward the end of Romans 12, um, where Paul says, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everybody. Um, that, that's our practice, <laughs> whether it's in uh, family relationships, church relationships, within secular society. Um, that as far as it depends on me, I want to live at peace and I will, I will bend over backwards to live at peace with somebody. Um, but if there comes a point where, where I have to make a little bit of a disruption or to, um, voice my concern in, in a public forum, um, then that's the avenue that, that, that we would take. And I think the point that he's making here is that that is part of your Christian confession to, to speak up, um, and not just to say, okay, well, um, this isn't so great, but we're just going to deal with it, that there is a point, yeah, there is a time for, for suffering for the faith, um, but that comes after speaking up for the faith. Yeah, and that reminds me too, I think I see this at least once a week, of parents speaking up at a school board meeting because of some woke theology that they are bringing into the school classrooms, whether it's CRT or it's LGBTQ things, uh, or any kind of, now, now the big thing is the, the smut, the pornography that's in the grade schools, and then the parents get up and they are pushing back. The governing authorities are also the school board. Hey, we have to understand that those are governing authorities. If we aren't to resist, then those parents are wrong in going and talking to and pushing back. Like you said, they see something wrong. They've pro we've probably let the school boards go for too long. And what I say a lot of times in Bible studies is we focus so much on who's going to be the president and vice president and Congress and so forth. The real, the things that really matter 
at the local level. You know, who's on our village or our town council? Who's on our school board? Because that's where you influence the children so that later on when they're in high school and college and they keep having these same, now this woke indoctrination, now those are the leaders in the coming years. So better to fight our smaller battles in the school boards and uh, resist now because what we see in these school boards, they're pushing this stuff down on the kids and it's time for us to push back, to resist. Yeah, and, and even at the same time as, as all of that, um, certainly in favor of speaking up at that sort of a thing, even better, um, run for school board. <laughs> you know, Why just be a voice when you just showed up at one meeting when you could yep. be sitting on the board for all of it um, and um, get your kids out of the schools? <laughs> Here you go. I mean, we, we, we still have to give our tax money um, to support our local schools and with and we have the belief that there is some you know beneficial community good to have an educated citizenship um but at the same time that doesn't mean that we as parents should abdicate all of our authority to um you know for eight hours a day or nine hours a day for an entire school year to this person who is not a christian and who is who is coming from an anti-christian worldview because if it isn't a Christian worldview, it's not just a non-Christian worldview. It's not neutral. It is anti-Christian. And, um, and so, you know, the way, the way it usually works is maybe you're at the end of all the education, you know, whether it's 12 or 18 or however many years of education one gets, they're not going to come home hating mom and dad, but they will come home hating mom and dad's values. Um, and if we are just ignorant to that, or we ignore it, um, and say, you know, it's not that big a deal. Um, we could not that big a deal all the way down a path that we don't want to go. Right. And then, uh, I, I end the chapter talking about praying for God's justice. So pray for your leaders. A lot of times I think if we disagree with the leaders, again, I'll use president. So if you disagree strongly with President Trump or you disagree strongly with President Biden, you you don't like them at all. That's the time you should be praying for them the most. And maybe that's something you can talk to your pastor about uh, that in, if he can include a petition, you know, a sentence or two in the prayer of the church on Sunday morning to pray for your leaders, pray for your president, your governor, your local leaders, your school board, and so forth. Uh, and then you do it as well. Do it in your personal prayers. Do it in your family prayers. Luther says here at the end uh, about when all of these kings and councils, when they oppose God, they're not going to win. And that's our comfort too, that when we push back, we have God with us. If we're doing it in a sanctified way, God is behind us. He says, for he who fights and contends against the gospel necessarily fights simultaneously against God, against Jesus Christ, against the Holy Spirit, against the precious blood of Christ, against his death, against God's word, against all the articles of faith, against all the sacraments, against all the doctrines which are given, confirmed, and preserved by the gospel. For example, the doctrine regarding government, regarding worldly peace, worldly estates, in brief, against all angels and saints, against heaven and earth and all creatures. 
For he who fights against God must fight against all that is of God and that has to do with God. So pray. Peter? I didn't have anything to add. <laughs> okay. Um, other other well, than maybe, you know, when, when we say pray, it's, um, yeah, pray for, the, pray for that person. And uh, it goes hand in hand with, um, with love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That if, if you are, if you do harbor animosity towards somebody, that's, that's not okay. Um, and that is a sign, yeah, pray for this person. And then I'm going to encourage all of you to pray for me uh, because I'm going to be going out to St. John's Lutheran Church in Goodhue, Minnesota. I'm going to be speaking at their congregation on September 11th at 6 p.m. If any of you are in that area, you're welcome to come to Pastor Robert's church. I appreciate him inviting me to come. And then I'll be speaking at the St. Croix Pastors Conference on, on Tuesday of next week. And I know I've talked to Peter about this, that while I was writing the book, I was growing my beard. I was a little shorter now, and I was buying clerical collars in case I got kicked out of the Wisconsin Synod for for my views and, and this book. That way I could just go over to the Missouri Synod and I'd be, I'd be fine. So hopefully, and I just bring it up, hopefully I don't get kicked out of the Synod after Monday and Tuesday. Uh, and then Sometimes. yeah, I, I will also read uh, an email I just received uh, a few minutes ago before we started recording. Uh, the gentleman writes, I completely agree with you on the two points. And what I had said is that I'm praying the book will lead us to a better discussion so we are more prepared for the next time. And he says, we weren't prepared, but now God offers us opportunity to prepare through this study. May God protect you and grant you an extra measure of wisdom as you lead us in discussion, understanding, and discernment. So I appreciate that comment and the prayers as well. Anything else, Peter? All right. So then we're going to wrap it up here. The next few episodes are going to be on the Magdeburg Confession. And this is a confession that is not in our doctrinal books uh, and that's only because it wasn't written at the time that the others were written and adopted. But this is a very important doctrine that we need to know, read, understand, and apply. So again, I would encourage you to, if you're really interested in this, uh, not only have my book, but then also look at uh, ordering the Magdeburg Confession. There's a few different ways of uh, that is written about, and you can find those again on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and so forth. And then being able to apply that. So we're going to be talking about that over the next few episodes. All right, Lord's blessings. <laughs>